Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. If you are new to the Bible, that's fine. We're very glad, actually, that you're here with us. This is a safe place to learn how to read God's Word. And if you don't have a Bible or don't have an ESV, which is the version that we use here, just grab your phone and type in John 3 ESV. You can follow along that way. We also have extra Bibles in the lobby. You're welcome to grab, get up and grab one of those at any time. John, chapter 3. And if you're opening to John, chapter 3, then before you, on your lap or on your phone, is arguably the most well-known passage on the planet. These are the verses from which we get the phrase, born-again Christian. John 3.16, which we'll get to next week, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, has been displayed at a massive amount of sporting events, sometimes on a sign, oftentimes painted on some poor guy's stomach, personally. I prefer to see it on the sign. It's that popular, though. John 3.16, well-known by Christians and non-Christians alike. It's almost a symbol. It's taken on a life of its own. These are familiar verses, but, but I want each of us at the outset here, I want to urge each of us to approach this passage this morning as if we have never read these verses before. I want us to be curious about John chapter 3. Don't, as you listen to it, go, oh, I know this, Pat. If you think that, try to resist it. Be curious about this passage because these words are so important, so important that if we gloss over them, we do so to our own potential harm. Jesus here is going to use a phrase that he doesn't use very often. He's going to say, you must. You must. And he's addressing not just the man in the passage he's speaking to. He's addressing you, 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 you. He's addressing me, you must, not optional, not negotiable, according to Jesus. We must take these words to heart. So let's listen closely to him. Listen to him as I read the passage to you. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. I'll read through verse 15 and then pray. Here we go. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. 
so it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The very words of God. Just join me in a brief prayer that he would help us understand them. Lord, we ask now that you would send your spirit, the one spoken of here that that opens up the eyes of the blind and gives new life. We ask that you would send your spirit to help us make sense of your words, help us to understand them accurately, to take them into our minds, that they might travel into our hearts and might bear fruit that looks like a real and living faith in you. But only you can do this, only you can make your word have its intended effects on us. So use my words to that end as I seek to be a faithful friend to all of my friends gathered here. Uh, Use me as your vessel. I need your help to speak just as much as we all need your help to hear and understand. So you make that happen today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. What is it that makes Christians different from everybody else? What is it that makes Christians different from everybody else? On the surface, let's be honest, Christians don't look that much different, and that's not a critique, okay? (laughs) But on the surface, let's just be honest, Christians don't look that much different from everybody else. We hold the same kinds of jobs, drive the same kinds of cars, live in the same kinds of homes, have the same kinds of problems and shortcomings, even addictions? Sure. Let's see, most Christians go to church on Sundays, even though that's kind of changing in the West. Most professing Christians go to church on Sunday and do some other religious activities like reading the Bible and praying, but, but plenty of non-Christians do spiritual and religious things too, right? So, so that can't be it. That can't be what's different about Christians. From everybody else. What is it that makes Christians fundamentally different from other people? Well, if we pose that question to Jesus, here's what he would say. He would say, a non-Christian has only been born once. A Christian has been born a second time. You must be born again. He says that three different times in this passage in three slightly different ways. And, and he, he's drilling at something here, but 
He's pointing something out. Most of us assume that what Jesus really wants from all of us is for us to be better people, right? Most of us assume that Jesus wants us just to be better people, more, more disciplined with our spending and eating and drinking and screen time, to be better employees and to be nicer to others. I'm sure uh, many, if not all of you, perhaps saw the He Gets Us ads that aired during the Super Bowl. And just to be clear, I'm not interested in inserting my opinion into the controversy. If you're arguing with people online about it, that's your prerogative. I'm not interested in that. Everyone has their thoughts about whether or not it was harmful or helpful, and I'm not going to take a side on that. Sorry to disappoint you. But here's what I will say about the he gets us ads they had a clear message and their message was christians need to be better neighbors and who can argue with that i know i need to be a better neighbor i can't argue with that christians should be better neighbors and those ads are a good representation of what most people assume is most important to jesus he just wants us to be better better versions of ourselves And all of his teaching is aimed at teaching us how to be better people. But that seriously misses the mark. Jesus doesn't want us to be better people. He wants us to be new people. He doesn't just want to make you a better person. He wants to make you an entirely new kind of person. Not a better you, but a new you. That's what it means to be born again. You and I are not like like a 30-year-old house that just needs some cosmetic repairs, you know, a new roof, a kitchen renovation, and a fresh paint job. No. We need to be rebuilt from the ground up. We don't need to be improved. We need to be remade. That's what Jesus wants for you that you'd be born a second time. So I want to ask you, everybody in this room, to wrestle with this this morning, myself included. Wrestle with this question as we work through this passage. Have you been born again? Have you been born again? Even if you think right now you would answer that question, yes. I want you to wrestle with it as we make our way through this passage. Have you been born again? Whether you're a, a little kid or a big kid, or an adult who feels like a little kid, whether you recently became a Christian or been walking with Jesus for years, for those here who who are quite sure or maybe aren't sure whether or not they're Christians, I want you to hear over and over again Jesus saying, you must be born again. And I want to show you why. Why must you be born again? In our passage, Jesus identifies four things we knew about you if you experience this new birth, this thing he's talking about. These, these four are outlined. I'll give them to you as we go. Point number one, if you're born again, you will have new senses. New senses. The man dialoguing with Jesus in John chapter 3, Nicodemus, is a high-ranking, well-respected Jewish leader. And as verse 1 says, he's a ruler of the Jews. That means he's part of the religious council, the Sanhedrin, that leads the Jewish people. And they lead not only spiritually, though they do, but also politically. And his demeanor as, as one of the rulers of the Jews towards Jesus is very respectful. And he, he, he's kind of unique in that sense. 
His demeanor towards Jesus is very respectful. He comes with genuine curiosity, and you can see that by the way that he begins interacting with Jesus in verse 2. You can look there. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Addressing, addressing Jesus as rabbi sets Jesus out as a colleague, an equal, which remember, Jesus has no formal training. He's not a part of the Sanhedrin. He, these guys, and in fact, later on, they're going to not want nothing to do with him. Jesus has no status in Israel. Yet Nicodemus recognizes the power of the signs that Jesus has been doing, the miracles, and the effectiveness of Jesus' teaching. He has started to garner quite a following, and he, Nicodemus concludes that Jesus must be some kind of God-sent teacher or prophet. But, but I want you to notice there's a subtext to his comment. There's a subtext. Even though he's not asking a question, he's actually asking a question. And you need, to, you need to understand this in order to understand why Jesus responds the way that he does. What he's asking is, Jesus, do you identify as the Jewish Messiah? He's asking Jesus if Jesus is more than just a prophet. Is he the one that God would send to redeem Israel from foreign captivity and restore the glory and power and prosperity of the, of the Isra Israeli nation? And Jesus understands that that's what Nicodemus is asking. That's what Nicodemus is asking. Are you the Messiah? Verse 3, Jesus answers him. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was shorthand for the restored kingdom of Israel, the kingdom ruled by the Messiah. Jesus says, you're asking if I'm the Messiah, but I'm telling you that you can't see the Messiah or his kingdom unless, and this would have, was very surprising, unless you're born again. Now, Nicodemus would have assumed he was in a good spot to see and receive the kingdom. He was ready for the kingdom. He was qualified for the kingdom. And Jesus cuts the legs right out from underneath him. You're not ready at all. If the kingdom showed up right now, you wouldn't even see it. Nicodemus, Jesus is saying, you think you're starting to see it. You think you may be starting to see it because you see these incredible things that I'm doing, but, but even if it is what you think it is, you're not really understanding what's going on. Even if Jesus told Nicodemus plainly, yeah, I'm the Messiah, which... Jesus did reveal that to some people at times throughout the Gospels. Even if he said that to him right now, Nicodemus wouldn't believe it. He lacks the necessary spiritual senses, the necessary spiritual perceptions to understand who Jesus really is. It's something so fundamentally wrong with him. Not an intellectual problem. This is important. It's not an intellectual problem that Nicodemus has. Jesus could feed him data all he wants. He could take him into the Old Testament and explain things to him and walk him through it. It wouldn't make a difference. It's a spiritual problem, not an intellectual problem. He lacks the spiritual senses. And so how? How do you get the new senses? Ah, it can only be fixed by a new birth. And that's what Jesus tells him. And listen, you and I and everybody else walking around share Nicodemus' predicament. Apart from a new birth, we can't properly identify God or his kingdom or his Messiah. Even if he shoved it right in our face, we wouldn't be able to see it. We are absolutely blind 
to the reality of God and his glory and the need for his grace. That's the state that we're in when we're born into this world. We are unable to perceive spiritual realities. We need more than good teaching. We need entirely new senses, a sixth sense. And only God can give you those senses. Only he can make you aware of the greater realities of his gracious rule and reign. This is why some people are Christians and some people aren't. Do you ever ask yourself, why do some people seem to get it and some people don't? It's not because Christians are smarter than everybody else. Exhibit A, not smarter than everybody else. Christians are Christians because God breaks into their lives and gives them this spiritual sight. He radically transforms their ability to see gives them the capacity to perceive the truth. And it's a gracious thing. It's something we can't do for ourselves. That's why Jesus is going to use this analogy. You're going to see it throughout. You can't make yourself born the first time. You can't make yourself born again. It's something that God has to do for you. Can't do it for yourself. Can't figure it out. No matter how many books you read or podcasts you listen to or conferences you attend or sermons you listen to. God has to break into your life and give you new senses so that you can perceive these ultimate realities. And Nicodemus's immediate response shows you that Jesus is right about this. Verse 4 phew, flies right over his head. How can a man be born when he's old? He can't perceive. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? It's a fair question. Jesus doesn't qualify what it means to be born again. But he thinks Jesus is talking about physical rather than spiritual birth. He can't yet perceive what Jesus is talking about. And that's the state everybody is in if they've only been born once. We can't see reality. God has to give us new senses through a new birth. So, new birth means new senses. Number two, Point number two, if you've been born again, you have new desires, new desires. In response to Nicodemus's incredulous question about being an old man going back into his mother's womb, Jesus further elaborates. The conversation doesn't end there. Verse five, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. God. This is the second time Jesus is saying you must be born again, but now he's offering some additional detail. He's filling, filling it in for us a little bit. He describes it as being born of water and the Spirit, and a, a, a lot of people, a, a lot of scholars in particular have wrestled with what does it mean water and Spirit, and you may over time, if you've heard this passage preached before, have, uh, have been told different things about this, but, but let, me, let, me get, let me just cut through that and give it to you straight. Water and spirit are not two separate things, okay? Sounds like he's talking about two kinds of birth, but he's not. Throughout the passage, he's only talking about one kind of birth. Water and spirit is one birth. It's just two parts of the whole, okay? And there's one passage in particular in the Old Testament that serves as the background for Jesus' statement here. Connects the dots between water and spirit and God's work in his people. Ezekiel 36 25 to 27. Don't need to turn there. Let me read it for you. I want you to hear this because it's going to help you make sense of what Jesus is saying here. 
Here's what Ezekiel wrote, God speaking to his people. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. Water and spirit. The water represents cleansing from the sin of idolatry. It represents forgiveness for past sins and preparation for future holiness. Okay? Forgiveness and preparation for the future. And the spirit represents a new heart, which is new desires, right? A heart that loves God and wants to please him. A heart that, that instead of running to idols, runs away from them and towards God in faith. God promised that he would give his people a new kind of spiritual life that would enable them to be faithful to him, that would protect him from these repeated mistakes and forays into sin and rebellion and idolatry. I'm going to give you a new kind of heart. I'm going to wash you and cleanse you from your sins and give you a new heart. And Jesus is saying that in order to experience that promise from the prophet Ezekiel, you must be born again. You must be born of water and spirit. To be born again is to be forgiven and cleansed from all the wrong that you've done. It's to be washed of your former sins and prepared to worship and serve God. To be born again is to have a new heart, the Spirit of God dwelling you, changing your deepest desires. Apart from that, you have no interest in God. Apart from that, I mean, everybody is on a project to live for themselves and make the best life for themselves with no, no view of the future, no view of eternity. Anybody who's gotten off of that track knows that at some point that's the track I was on. I was just living for today. I was living for the next high, living for the next promotion. That's how we live. But somebody that has new desires, that sees God, wants to now please God, is concerned about the things of God, Sin, even though you're not rescued from it immediately, but sin has lost its appeal. It's turned to ash in your mouth. There's now a longing to be godly, to be holy, to please God. That's what Jesus has in mind when he uses the words water and spirit. Forgiven for sins and desiring to be holy, pleasing to God. That's what marks somebody who's born of water and the Spirit. Listen, apart from the new birth, we are not forgiven. Apart from the new birth, our desires are left unchanged. And we continue to do what the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, did. We disobey God. We hide from Him. We seek to make our own way in the world without Him. We need to be forgiven for that. We need to be forgiven for rebelling against our Creator. But we also need our desires changed so that we don't continue in that rebellion. We need a new nature. New nature, new desires, a new heart. That's what Jesus offers through the new birth. Again, not a better you, a new kind of you. And in order to take that offer, you've got to want that new nature. So let me ask you, just to reflect for a moment. Are you tired of yourself? Had that experience sitting alone, 
thinking about another mess that you're in. I am tired of this. Tired of your repeated mistakes and failures. Tired of how distant God seems. Tired of the feelings of just meaninglessness, purposelessness that often haunts you. Tired of fearing death. Tired of feeling like your life doesn't really count for anything of significance. Well, Jesus is offering to make you an entirely new kind of person with a new nature. To expel all of that. Fully forgiven for all of your mistakes. New appetites and desires, along with a new capacity to see truths about God. A new way of relating to God and making sense of your life and making sense of the world at large. If that's appealing to you, then understand this. You must be born again in order to experience that. There's no other way. Not not enough self-help books in the world will give you what the new birth can give you. Point number three. The new birth gives you a new identity. A new identity. Jesus continues his explanation of what it means to be born again in verse six. Here's what he says, verse six. You can look there. That that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Born of the flesh, flesh. Born of the spirit, spirit. Listen, your parents have a huge impact on your life, don't they? Right? You look like them, for better or for worse. <laughs> you probably act like them, for better or for worse. <laughs> and you inherit, even just biologically, deeper genetic traits. Again, some for better or for worse. And that's what Jesus is describing here, the, the effect of parenting on an individual. And he's saying, you're born of the flesh. You're Your parents, in a sense, are the flesh. And you could trace that back to Adam and Eve, all the way back to the garden. You're born of the flesh. You have inherited, by virtue of your first birth, the characteristics of the flesh. And to be clear, the flesh in the book of John is never a good thing. Never a good thing. It is not good to be born of the flesh. It's a bad thing. The flesh represents everything in the world that is opposed to God. The flesh is what drives us to murder and cheat and steal and lie and oppress and harm. When we're born in this world, we are of the flesh, children of the flesh. That's why we do what we do. Again, it's part of our nature, but it's also part of our identity. That's who I am. I'm defined by these things that I want and crave and do. And that is why, because we're of the flesh, that there's so much evil and injustice in the world out there, but also in here. We're of the flesh. We're not children of God. None of us are born children of God, but that can change through a new birth. Back in chapter 1, our author, the Apostle John, wrote, But to all who did receive him, Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
Feel the connection between those verses. John, John set the ball and Jesus spikes it right here in chapter 3. You were born of the flesh, but you don't have to stay there. You can become children of God. The Spirit that Jesus refers to is the Spirit of God. To be born again of the Spirit is to become a child of God, a new identity given to us by a new parent. God the Father with Christ the Son as our brother and the Spirit in us, assuring us that we are children of God. But that only happens to a person who has been born a second time. You must be reborn as God's child. You do not start as one. And that's why the New Testament will eventually go to to describe it as adoption. And then you can take on that identity. You can grab hold of that identity. I am God's child. And you can and, and just hold it close to your heart. An identity better than all of the other ones that you're tempted to take. All right? And you're being offered plenty of them. Don't take them. Don't take them. Take this one. Child of God. An identity that comes with wonderful rights and privileges and joys and comforts. Oh, just just to pick up on that last word, comfort. It is a great comfort to know that you are God's child. That he's taken you on as his own. He, He has taken responsibility of you, taken charge of you. He will provide everything you need. He will never send you away. He will attend to your every need. He will keep you safe. He will keep you in his house. It's great comfort to be a child of God, to have that as your identity. How do you get it? You must be born again can have that new identity. Point number four. New future. New birth gives you a new future. Skip down to the bottom of our passage with me. Jesus' dialogue with Nicodemus continues, and we'll come back to some of that in a moment. But look down at verse 13. Jesus says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses, verse 14, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. As we've already seen throughout the book of John, the Old Testament is critical background for interpreting and understanding the things that are going on in the book of John. And John references the Old Testament over and over and over again. Again, we've already got Ezekiel 36 in there. Now we have two Old Testament references just in these three verses. The first is the Son of Man, an Old Testament term for the Messiah, which Nicodemus likely knew. He was familiar with the term Son of Man. Jesus hasn't yet identified himself as the Son of Man, but he's telling Nicodemus that only the Messiah has been in heaven, right? That's what verse 13 means. Only the Messiah has been in heaven, and he came from there to earth to prepare his people for heaven. That's what verse 13 is all about. No one's ascended into heaven except the Son of Man who descended from there. That's where the Messiah has come from. But how is he going to get his people ready for heaven? Verse 14. 
As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. This reference to the serpent being lifted up in the wilderness, a reference to the book of Numbers, chapter 21, where God sends fiery serpents among his people as punishment for their complaining about how God saved them from Egypt and led them through the hot, uncomfortable desert and didn't, they didn't like the snacks that he provided. You can go read Numbers 21 later this afternoon. We don't like the food you gave us. That's the things they're complaining about. And so God, after dealing with their grumbling for a while, chastises them. Verse 6, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. But that isn't the end. When they were humbled, God offered them a remedy from the snakes, a way to repent of the sin of grumbling and trust them for forgiveness and grace. Here's Numbers 21 again. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. The serpent was lifted up on the pole. If you were dying and you looked at the pole, which was just a way to say faith, trusting in God's word, if you looked at the pole like God said to you, lived. Look at what's on the pole and live. And Jesus is saying that is how the Messiah will get his people ready for heaven. Verse 15, that whoever believes in him, whoever looks to him, may have eternal life. You won't just live a bit longer. You live forever. If you have new eyes to see the Messiah and his kingdom, if you have a new heart that seeks forgiveness for your sins and desires to serve God and be with God, if you have a new identity as a child of God, then you can be sure that you have a new future, eternal life with God. You will never truly die. Your body will, it may, unless you last until Jesus comes back, but your soul will live on forever with God, and one day you will take up a new body and a new heavens and new earth, just like the Messiah who was raised up on a piece of wood to die so that his people would live. Without the cross, there is no new birth. Without the cross, there's no new birth. And in order for us to see the cross and for it to make sense to us, we must be born again. And if we are, if we do, if we see Jesus hanging on the cross for us, we will have new life. He promises that right here. If you receive him, you will have everlasting life. You can escape the worst consequence of our sinful existence, death, and judgment. And you can lay hold of a life like, that, like Jesus's that goes on forever and ever. Death can be put to death for you if you're born again. You're born once to die. You must be born again to live. Now, I've said more times than I can count, you must be born again. So, how? How do you get born again? All right, Dustin. Got it. I gotta be born again. <laughs> How? In verse 9, Nicodemus asks the same question. Verse 9, how can these things be? How does this work? That's what he's asking. And as I mentioned earlier, Jesus implies that Nicodemus should have been able to figure this out using his Old Testament. 
He should have been able to figure this out reading Ezekiel 36. That's why Jesus says, verse 10, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Jesus assumes he should have been able to put this together. Shouldn't be so confusing for you, Nicodemus. It's right there in your Bible all along and you missed it. Now, of course, we know why, because Jesus, Nicodemus hadn't been born again. So how does one become born again? Jesus answers that in two ways. And the first is this, God has to do it. Verse eight, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. This doesn't mean that like Christians are like leaves on the wind getting blown around to random places. That's not what he's saying. This is the wind here is an analogy for the Spirit of God. You know the wind is there, even though you can't see it, but you do see the effects of it. And you can't control or predict it. And that was especially true for people in the ancient world who didn't have a Doppler radar and things like that, right? They definitely couldn't control or predict it. And even with all of our scientific advancements, we can't control or ultimately predict the weather either. And so it is with the Spirit. We can't make the Spirit do anything. We can't make Him do anything. He decides when to give new life to a person. He decides when someone is born the first time, God does, and he decides when they're born again. We can't make him do it, but we sure will know when he does. The evidence will be there. So what's the evidence? How will we know that God has done it? How do, how do you know if somebody else has been born again? How do you know if you've been born again? Jesus says, verse 11 to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And the key there, receive our testimony. I know it's a little confusing that Jesus goes into plural there, we. And again, people have speculated what he's talking about. Is it him and the Spirit? He has been referencing the Spirit. Perhaps he's talking about the Trinity. Is he talking about his disciples? It doesn't seem so. No, but Jesus switches and says, we. He's assuming there's more than one person giving a testimony about this. You do not receive our testimony. The evidence that you've been born again is faith. It's faith. You receive the testimony of Jesus. You do what Nicodemus has not yet been able to do. Receive the testimony of Jesus. That's how you know you've been born again. That's the visible change on the surface. It's not that all of a sudden you're just a better parent and a better employee and, you know, a, a better you, right? It's not, that, that's not the evidence that you've been born again. Not a transformed life, though that will certainly follow. You will change. But what happens instantaneously is faith. You go from not believing to believing, not understanding to understanding, not seeing to seeing, not hearing, but hearing. That's what happened to every Christian in this room when you were regenerated, right? Those of you that have read a systematic theology are probably waiting for that word, regenerated, regeneration, the theological term for being born again. The Spirit gives you new life, and now you believe in Jesus. Now you see him as valuable. You understand why the cross was necessary. And you believe that what he did on the cross was for you. That's how you know you've been born again. Our statement of faith describes regeneration this way. God bestows new spiritual life 
opening our eyes to see God's glory in Christ and enabling us to respond to the gospel in faith and repentance. With a renewed heart and mind, we receive Christ and rely fully on him for salvation, turning from our sinful, self-seeking way of life to love and follow Christ in joyful obedience. Only those who respond to the gospel in this way will be saved. Yet, even this response is a gift of God's merciful grace, ensuring that he alone receives the glory for our salvation. The great summary of John chapter 3. Listen, if you're a Christian, remember that God has done this for you. God has done this for you. And rejoice that God has done this for you. Remember that he's done this for you and rejoice that God has done this for you. God has done this for you and to you and it's, it's marvelous not only in your eyes but in our eyes as well. Remember and rejoice that you've been regenerated. That's what you should do this afternoon. If you're not a Christian, understand that the offer of new life that Jesus is holding out to you is, it is so critical that you take his words seriously. You must be born again. And understand the consequences if you refuse his offer or if you turn away or you don't seek him further on this. There are only two paths. Only two paths. The path to death, which you're already on, and the path to life through the new birth. Those are the two options. Remember, consider, wrestle with Jesus' words that you must be born again. And we hope, we pray, we preach, we sing so that you will come to believe in Jesus and experience this wonderful, powerful, life-altering transformation. <laughs> we want him to do for you what he's done for us. So I want to pray that he would join me in prayer. <clears throat> Lord, we come before you humbly, realizing that our greatest need to be born again, to go from death to life, uh, this is our greatest and most urgent need, and you alone have the power to make it happen. And so we come before you and just ask, Lord, that for those who have experienced the new birth, that there would be a palpable joy in their souls as they consider what you have done for them graciously, powerfully, bringing them from death to life, giving them so much that's new and indestructible and wonderful. And Lord, I pray for those among us who have not yet been born again. Some of them are guests, some of them are our children. Some of them may have been attending the church for a long time, but can just sense that this hasn't happened. Lord, we ask that by your power you would cause them to be born again and that they would come to see Jesus for who he really is and experience forgiveness and cleansing and joy and hope and a new identity and the prospect of a wonderful future. future. So, cause many among us to be born again for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.